0: Good morning, dear Intriguer, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss the future of the Wagner Group and the election last week in Zimbabwe. It's all coming up. Morning, John. How are you?
1: Hello, Ethan. Good to see you again. I thought you did a, a great job uh, on the pod last week without me, which doesn't bode well for my continued uh, involvement. But uh, I'm very well. How are you?
0: Oh, doing great, doing great. Uh, I missed you. I missed you terribly. Just so you know, I mean, you're completely very nice to you hear. You may be expendable. You may be expendable to the audience, but to <laughs> me, you're uh, as important as ever. That's uh, all I wanted. That's all I want you to say, <laughs> John. We got a lot to cover today. I mean, we missed. Unfortunately, we we missed a, a massive week in global politics. It always works uh, out that way, right? <laughs> always. Always. It's just a, it's just a rule. Uh, but let, let me just read you some headlines to start. They're they're all either from the 25th or the 26th of June. Here's from CNBC.com. Russian mercenary chief Prigozhin is, quote, dead man walking. From Al-Arabia, Prigozhin may be assassinated in Belarus as Putin, quote, doesn't forgive traitors. And from Time Magazine, how long can Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin survive? Well, John, last week we got our answer, didn't we?
1: We we sure did. Did you say those headlines from what the twenty twenty fifth or twenty sixth of June? That's uh, they all deserve awards, I guess, for predicting the predicting the future. But yep. yeah, we we sure got our answer. Um. Well, I guess to recap, obviously the news for our listeners um, and, and then folks who listened last week will be aware, I think you covered this last week, um, but uh, former head of Russia's Wagner Group, the the paramilitary organization, uh, Evgeny Prigozhin, um, he was one of 10 people on board a plane that crashed under mysterious circumstances near or from Moscow, somewhere between Moscow and St. Petersburg uh, last Wednesday. Um now, as you noted, I think last week the only information that we have comes from you know Russian government sources. They said that they ran DNA tests and that Prigozhin was on board. It was actually him. Um, so we'll we'll go ahead and take the Russians at their word that he's dead. But uh, let me tell you, Ethan, we're not going to take their word that they weren't involved in his death. Right? Um, they, I think they came out and said it was a unfortunate accident, and they're investigating the the causes of the of the crash. Um, you know, immediately after the news broke, open source intelligence reporters uh examined the flight data the stuff that's available on online and that showed everything going normal with the plane nothing nothing unusual and then boom it started to lose altitude um which US uh, intelligence kind of agreed with and said that it points to a bomb being on board which I think is what we all widely assume
0: so we're we're assuming Prigozhin was assassinated most likely on the order of President Putin first question here i mean i was reading those headlines from 2
1: months ago right. Why did it take so long? Yeah, well, two things there. I think we we generally assume that Putin kind of knows everything in Russia and nothing goes on without his say so. Um, but I think there is actually a semi plausible. I'm trying. I'm working hard here, but a semi plausible explanation that uh, Prigozhin was assassinated by folks in the military or the security services. Um, as my very good friend Dmitry reminded me on Twitter, Prigozhin's coup attempt, at least what Prigozhin said. It was about was taking out the defense leadership. Nothing to do with Putin. He wasn't challenging Putin. Um, So I guess Defense Minister Shoigu perhaps could have done this, but you know, it's not it's not likely, but it's not impossible. But to your to your second point, um, I think I'm surprised that Progorshin lasted this long, and I don't think anyone's upset. Um, or you know shedding too many tears for him but it's pre- it's a pretty quick turnaround from launching this mutiny to uh to to, to kind of being dead i think two months almost to the day right so you're saying it, you're saying you think it happened Quickly, yeah, I think I, th- I I was expecting this kind of revenge to be served much colder than it than it has been. Um, you know, Putin Putin's shown that he's happy to wait to get his revenge. He's killed or imprisoned oligarchs, double agents, spies. Um, famously poisoning Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader. Um, but he's sometimes years after they've done something to enrage Putin. Um, do you remember that case? Uh, of the Scripples in, uh, in in Salisbury back in the UK. I think that was like decades after Sergei Scripple was... Father,
0: daughter, right?
1: Exactly right. I mean, that was decades since he was working for the, the UK and then like a decade since he'd settled in the UK before Putin got to him. So I am a little surprised. Um, and in this case, you know, Prigozhin goes from one of the big leaders of the Ukrainian war, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, to staging this mutiny, then... Seemingly shaking hands again with Putin in the Kremlin and shaking hands and taking selfies with African leaders at that summit that they hosted in St. Petersburg. Uh, seemingly filming videos in North Africa last week to being blown out of the sky on on Wednesday. That's all happened in about the same time frame as it takes me to unpack after a three-day weekend.
0: <laughs> all right. So so why now? I mean, I have to think Putin will understand that no one will think this was anything but an assassination. Does he not care, or is there a, a reason why he picked the end of August, just to, to spare Prigozhin from a long winter?
1: <laughs> That'd be nice. Save him save him one last Russian winter. But no, yeah, I, look, I, I don't think Putin gives a hoot about the optics anymore. I don't think he cares what people in the West say about him or think about him. I suspect... Part of uh, Putin's decision to act, what I think is quite quickly, um, was just how brazen um, and public-facing the mutiny or the coup attempt was, right? I, I don't think Putin had any interest in tolerating that and kind of reintegrating Prigozhin into Russian society to kill him in three, four years' time. Um, but but what's, I think, really remarkable here is that Prigozhin obviously felt pretty comfortable, pretty safe, um, certainly safe enough to operate within Russia, um, board planes without, you know, screening them for bombs. Um, you know, I think truly everyone was expecting that there would be retribution except for Purgosian himself, which is just weird. So I don't know, there's a ton of unanswered questions around, around this, you know, P- Prigozhin understands the landscape in Russia. He worked for Putin. He knows that Putin isn't likely to take it lying down. So I, I don't know. Um, and I guess here's where I get a little bit conspiracy theorist about it. It's like, why would Prigozhin feel that safe? What, deal did he strike with Putin? Did he have insurance, so to speak, some sort of compromise on Putin? Um, you know, really speculation. But um if that's the case, will that stuff come out in the near future? Um, you know, I, it's getting a bit into Tom Clancy thrillers, but I mean all of this, this whole thing has been a Tom Clancy thriller from start to finish. So I don't know. <laughs> all
0: right, let's let's take it back to the real world for, yeah, for just idea. a second and and touch touch on something you said. I mean Prigozhin. Was he was clearly quite popular among Wagner yeah. group fighters, popular enough to to lead them on a march, you know, within hundreds of kilometers of Moscow. And let's not forget that this is still a, quite a potent force, uh, and, and even popular among some members of Russia's military elite. So, Definitely. so what's next? I mean, has Putin made a mistake?
1: Well, you know. That- This is all speculation again, and Putin clearly isn't an idiot. Um, I would imagine that he got his internal ducks in a row, so to speak, in the Kremlin um, before he felt comfortable making this move. You know, key power sources inside the Kremlin, Uh, he he would have had to feel comfortable that those kind of key power players in the Kremlin weren't going to revolt if this happened, right? You know, let's not forget, this is a guy who has, over the last 20-odd years, managed to bring Russia's oligarchs, the military, their their disparate security services. He's brought them all under his thumb. So, you know, he knows what he's doing.
0: Yeah, but let's let's also not forget, you know, Prigozhin's mutiny didn't happen in isolation. It was, I would say, fundamentally a response to not just the treatment of the Wagner group, but how Putin has prosecuted Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which has made plenty of people more than a little bit frustrated.
1: Yeah, no, it's a great point. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I, I, as you said, and as I said before, there are plenty of Wagner fighters who really revered Prigozhin for better or worse. Um, you know, are they all now targets, marked men inside Russia? I don't know. Um, will they just happily kind of kiss the ring of the guy who murdered their beloved boss? It's it's a, it, it, there's a lot of unanswered questions, and of course, I think the thing to remember also as we, as we talk and think about this is that, you know, the way we view these events is potentially very different to the way it's viewed inside Russia. Um, you know, we don't trust Putin. We believe he, you know, we don't believe what he says. We think he's a murderer capable of this kind of stuff has form all of that. Um, but perhaps in inside Russia and particularly uh, among Wagner fighters, um, perhaps there's less certainty that Putin was actually responsible for this. Maybe, maybe he's able to actually pass off that idea that, Hey, you know, I'm not that sad. The guy is dead, but I, didn't kill him um you know i think in fact i think he putin himself said about Prigozhin. i think he called him a talented man who made serious mistakes right so you know may, maybe maybe the russians are actually buying that narrative john
0: for what it's worth uh I would happily avenge your death if it ever came down to
1: it. Uh, so thank you very much. I'm a talented man who's made serious <laughs> yeah, that, mistakes. That too. <laughs> yeah.
0: You're a bit, a Appreciate bit it. hesitant to to laugh at your own assassination. But John, <laughs> what happens? Uh, what happens now to the Wagner Group or to you know to those fighters that you just mentioned?
1: Yeah, that's the big question here, right? Um, and I think the reason it's so up in the air um, isn't because just Prigozhin was on board this flight. It was like half the leadership of, of the Wagner group. I think it was you know, the other founder, Dmitry Utkin, and I think uh, some of the security guys who were on board as well. Um, and then on Saturday, just, you know, what's that, three days after the crash, uh, Putin ordered the Wagner fighters to, to sign an oath of, alle- oath of allegiance to the Russian state, not wasting any time kind of bringing them under the thumb, um, which, you know, that points to Wagner being subjugated into the Russian military, or at least into the Russian state somehow. Um, But that's also just one possibility. Perhaps Putin will kind of maintain the Wagner group and and appoint someone he trusts as a loyalist um, to to lead the group from now on.
0: I remember hearing about a a former Putin loyalist who was tasked (laughs) with leading the Wagner group.
1: I know where you're going with this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're right. I mean, obviously, Prigozhin was one of Putin's kind of most trusted aides until he very spectacularly wasn't. Um, And and it just shows that it's a difficult question that Putin, or balancing actually, that Putin has. Um, On the one hand, he he doesn't want another kind of Prigozhin type to take the reins of this heavily armed, very well-trained sort of pseudo-militia group. Um, But on the other hand, he probably wants to avoid upsetting the remaining fighters of Wagner Group. and, 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 you know, we've been saying it for a long time. It's not a good idea if you're an authoritarian to have this extra Judicial paramilitary group that's armed and well resourced, because um, it's a matter of time before it comes back to bite you. Um, but I think the li- you know the lingering question here too is, is whether the Russian state will kind of replace the Wagner group in all the places the Wagner group has become so influential. We're thinking, you know, Africa and and, and elsewhere. Um, I think. Until recently, Putin has been very, very reticent to get regular Russian troops into those places. Um, You know, there's this idea that you want some sort of insulation, a bit of like plausible deniability between some of the things that the Wagner group is doing, which are, you know, very, very questionable, to put it mildly, Um, you know. I think it was not even that long ago that Putin and Prigozhin denied there was even a Wagner group and that they were even involved in it. So they they clearly want that plausible deniability. If Russian forces start to move into Mali and Burkina Faso and these kinds of places where the Wagner group is, well, they lose that 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 in, that insurance, that kind of um, insulation from from criticism. Um, so I don't know. That's it's a, a big unknown. John, final final word on this. I mean, we were we were taking side bets,
0: not actually. But, but sort of jokingly – Yeah, about, we, run,
1: we run a side book. That's how we make money. That's, that's
0: the, the, the primary uh, revenue engine for, for intrigue. Um, but, but we were taking you know, sort of joking side bets about who would outlast who, whether it would be Prugosian uh-huh. or Putin that would win the day. I mean, first of all, how does this affect the, the war in Ukraine? And, and does this mean Putin is ascendant?
1: Well, I'll take the first question. Um, the war in Ukraine, you know, we're still in this uncomfortable position. Ukraine's counter-offensive is ongoing. It's had some success, not a lot of success, but enough success to kind of keep pushing. Um, I don't think Russia feels like they can, you know, they don't have the situation in hand, but now they also don't have this Wagner group to kind of throw into the battles, the, the meat grinder, as they so unceremoniously put it. Um, so I don't think, I don't think it's good for Russia's war effort, um, but, you know, it's 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 pretty difficult to say how it'll play out on the battleground. As for Putin, and I've copped a fair bit of flack over the weekend for this one, but I think his goose is cooked. Um, I, I actually thought that the minute that Prigozhin launched his mutiny, may, maybe even the minute that the Russians failed to take Kiev really quickly back in back at the very start of the invasion in in 2022. But, you know, everything that I understand about history and geopolitics and Russian politics and the way these things work, all of it points to this current situation, to being a very unstable equilibrium. Um, It can't hold. Uh, You know, Putin is weak. Russia is weak. I kind of disagree with the people who say that the killing of Prigozhin is a, is a show of strength. I think it's a desperation act. Um, you know, he'll, he'll do pl- Putin. Will do plenty of things to project strength from here on out. But um, it might take years. It might not take years. But I think that uh, we will all be talking about a Russia that isn't led by Putin sooner than many people think.
0: Today's show is sponsored by Incogni. Are you as tired as I am of getting phone calls from numbers you don't recognize? If you are, you need Incogni. Incogni steps in to scrub all your personal data, your phone number, your birth date, and even your social security number from the furthest corners of the web, places you wouldn't even think to look, so that the data brokers that steal and sell your data don't stand a chance. Check out the show notes to learn more. All right, welcome back, John. We love elections. There aren't many pre-scheduled events in global politics, uh, especially not none that are as impactful uh, as elections can be.
1: Yeah, we do. We love pre-scheduled events mostly because we can plan ahead and get a good night's sleep, right, and not react. But uh... seriously,
0: yeah. <laughs> I mean, for for the love of God, if you're a world leader, if you're planning on doing something drastic. Please do it before 10 p.m. on a school night. Well, 9 to 5 would be nice.
1: Not too much to ask. 9 to
0: 5 is fine. We'll take what we can get. Well, so last week while we were off from the newsletter, we were closely watching the election in Zimbabwe. So, you know, let's dive in. What made this election so significant?
1: This is the election between um, the incumbent Zimbabwean leader, Emerson uh, Menangagwa, a.k.a. The Crocodile, a nickname that kind of stems from his time as uh, former President Mugabe's ruthless enforcer, so not not the nicest guy in the world, Um, and Nelson Kamisa, a former information minister in Zimbabwe who was once the youngest person ever elected to Zimbabwe's parliament. We often... Talk about you know the, the advantages that incumbents have in these kinds of countries in elections. Um, you know they can lean on their experience on the campaign trail, their known quantities, um, and most importantly, they can use state resources to support their re-election efforts. But the advantage that President uh, manangagua and I, and I hope I'm saying his name correctly, uh, but the advantage that he had in this election was you know I think far more significant than just kind of the odd helping hand. So his party, ZANU-PF, that's the party that's been in power in Zimbabwe since the country ended its white minority rule back in 1980. Um, famously, the party of former dictator Robert Mugabe. Um, and he was in power until 2017, 1980 to 2017. Um, and and that was when he was actually ousted in a coup by Menangagwa and his allies. Um, and Menangagwa was vice president at the time. Um, and just like his predecessor, he's gone on to rule Zimbabwe as an autocrat and taken firm control of the country's election process. And we're kind of not that in much of a different place than we were under uh, under Mugabe, really. Yeah.
0: So was there any doubt that Mnangagwa, the, the crocodile, would
1: emerge victorious? Well, actually, interestingly enough, I think there was a little bit of doubt. Um, in, Zimb- in Zimbabwe's last election back in 2018, um, which was also contested, by Kamisa, so it was the same runoff. Um, Manangeuwa only won fifty-two percent of the vote, uh, not quite the margins you kind of see in autocracies, right? You know, we're used to getting the ninety, the ninety percent. And I think actually under Mugabe, he he would win by ninety percent, right? Um, which is famously you can just go like, oh, okay, obviously authoritarian, but it, it wasn't as clear in this case because fifty-two percent, well, that's pretty plausible, right? Um, and and this campaign was competitive, so there was hope, I think, that uh, that Camisa might really have a chance this time around, but it didn't turn out that way. Um, the election was marred by reports of hours of voting delays, there were allegations of voter harassment, dozens of independent election observers were arrested, um, and had their computers seized. So, you know, again, that's very stereotypical authoritarian election um, tactics, right? Uh, and by Saturday night, uh Manangagwa was declared the victor, again, winning with 52% um, uh, compared to 44% for his challenger.
0: So we started at, at this, Potentially hopeful moment for the country, or at least for ZANU PF's opponents. That's been dashed. Those hopes have been dashed. Right. So, so, where is Zimbabwe now?
1: Well, I mean, it's not a not a satisfying answer, but I, I think right where right where they were before. Um, you know, Zimbabwe is lagging badly behind its wealthy, democratic neighbours like Botswana, Namibia, South Africa. Obviously, um, only twenty twenty five percent of Zimbabwe's population is employed. Um, not twenty five percent. Unemployment, twenty-five percent employment, um, and inflation is soaring over hundred percent. It's eighteen billion dollars in debt, so it's not a good economic story. Um, and some of the country's creditors have promised to forgive some of that debt um, in exchange for political reforms, like you know, free and fair elections. But we, you know, they haven't come about. Uh, I think interestingly, for the first time, several African blocs actually kind of criticized Zimbabwe for its failure to hold free and fair elections. Um, You know, I don't think that's going to be anywhere near enough to change this election's outcome. But I think uh, instability in other parts of Africa is making Zimbabwe's neighbors kind of reconsider their more kind of live and let live, hands-off approach, Um, you know, At least to me, it appears that Zimbabwe has kind of operated away from international pressure, despite being, you know, uh, mostly an autocracy. So maybe, maybe that's going to change in the near future. I don't know. Um, You know, as uh, interesting as a last last word here on this, and I hate recommending other podcasts. You know that, Ethan. Oh, don't Um, do it. Well, I feel compelled to here for 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 the the benefit of our listeners. Um, But they may have heard of the Rest Is Politics podcast, which is hosted um, by the former Tony Blair era spin doctor, Alice. Campbell in the UK and, and former UK Tory minister, Rory Stewart. Um, but they had a very interesting segment recently on Menungagwa and his kind of regime. Uh, Rory Stewart was a, was a previous, previous cabinet minister in the UK government and he met him when he was on a trip to Zimbabwe. Um, soon after, he uh, Menungagwa came to power and there was this kind of hope that he was going to be a reformer after Mugabe, but safe to say that Stuart kind of tells this story about how he left that meeting in absolutely no doubt about the ruthlessness of the guy and that there was going to be no change in Zimbabwe. So I think the, the idea that, you know, external pressure is going to change things might be wishful thinking um, on, on our part.
0: I, I didn't realize that there even were other podcasts, John. And, and now I'm reading off of our description on Spotify. Intrigue Out Loud, your one-stop shop for global news.
1: Yeah, well, maybe we need to change that to like one-stop shop, except for the odd recommendation when when we see it's appropriate. But don't, yeah, don't, don't substitute us for them, that's for sure. <laughs>
0: And that's going to do it for me. By the way, we've got a great guest piece in the International Intrigue newsletter today from one of the top Middle East experts in the world. So make sure you head over and check it out. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Black and see you on Friday.